Chapter 8 of Pollyanna's Jewels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pollyanna's Jewels by Harriet Lewis Smith. Locating a Conscience. In the Pendleton household, the joy of the Christmas season was sweetness long drawn out. Before the first snow flurry, Junior and Judy began planning their Christmas gifts, and invariably with the insouciance of millionaires. They had so many to remember. At Christmas time, the baby was the most important member of the family, from their standpoint, and always headed the list. Then came Mother, and Daddy, and Aunt Polly, and Aunt Ruth, and Uncle John, and Aunt Sadie, and Uncle Jamie, and Nancy, and Jiggs, and Sin, and Goldilocks and it took Pollyanna's best powers of persuasion to keep them from adding the names of all the children of the neighborhood. Goldilocks was easily provided for. A lump of sugar and a slice of apple, Pollyanna assured the children, was to him the equivalent of a fine Christmas tree and a full stocking. Sin was to be remembered with a catnip ball and a red ribbon. Jiggs, who had a disheartening habit of outgrowing his collar, was to have a brand new one, large enough to allow for all future thickening of his heavy bulldog neck. The children had sat for their photograph early in the fall, and these provided for the formidable list of uncles and aunts, and they held long conferences with their mother to decide what to give their father, and consulted their father daily with the most ostentatious secrecy as to the most desirable gift for their mother and both parents were called on frequently to help decide the all-important question of what to give the baby. Pollyanna was anxious that, from the very beginning, their Christmas planning should extend beyond their own little circle and include the idea of giving happiness to those less fortunate than themselves. She went about it tactfully, for she wished the suggestion to come from the children's awakened sympathies rather than from herself. When she and Jimmy discussed, in Junior's presence, the desirability of making a contribution to the Near East Relief as part of their Christmas giving, Junior listened with the closest attention. Encouraged by his air of interest, Pollyanna emphasized the distressful situation such gifts would help to relieve. Junior said nothing at the time, but he was so evidently pondering the subject that she was certain of hearing from him before long. And indeed, at bedtime, that hour so fruitful of confidences, Junior introduced the topic of his own volition. Mother, do you want me to send some of my Christmas money to those little boys and girls you were telling Daddy about? Pollyanna's heart swelled with triumph. If you want to do it, little son, she answered, as she stroked his hair. It would please Mother very much. Junior deliberated. Did you say they was a starvin' mother? Some of them are, Junior. Well, if it's such a long way, I guess by the time my money got there, they'd all have starved to death. I'd rather give it to somebody nearer. It was through the laundress that Pollyanna learned of a family which combined the requisites of proximity and poverty. The laundress, Mrs. Todd, was a hard-working, self-respecting woman who looked down on the recipients of public charity from immeasurable heights. But for a neighbor, a certain Mrs. Bunting, deserted by her husband and left with six children to support, 
Her contempt was blended with pity. I don't say she's not a poor thing, Mum. If she hadn't been, she'd have shook that man of hers before he had a chance to shake her. But she's doing her best, and the children ain't as bad as most. And there won't be no Merry Christmas in that family, unless somebody gives it to em, poor souls. Further inquiries from Mrs. Todd elicited the information that the Bunting family included a boy not far from Junior's age, and a little girl three months older than Judy. It was much easier to kindle the children's interest in these objects of charity so close at hand. Almost their first Christmas shopping was for the two Buntings, nearest their own ages. Junior bought the boy a miniature fire engine, and Judy expended a quarter on a doll for the little girl. And perhaps before Christmas really gets here, Pollyanna told them, you'll find you can spare some of the toys you're getting tired of for the little Buntings. I'm going to put a basket on one of the shelves in the linen closet, and, when we come across something that will help make a happy Christmas for those children, we'll put it in the basket. The plan worked. The next day, Junior enriched the basket with a box of blocks, announcing importantly that he was too old to play with blocks any longer, and Judy contributed a tiny cup that had lost its handle, and a scrap of pink silk, the size of a postcard. Pollyanna added a suit Junior had outgrown and some little frocks of Judy's. The basket was filling up nicely when one day, as Pollyanna looked its contents over, to be sure the children had put in nothing of which she did not know, she made the discovery that the doll which Judy had purchased for little Mamie Bunting had disappeared. Pollyanna's perturbation had nothing to do with the value of the doll. As far as that went, it could easily be replaced, but the idea that, among her children's playmates, was one who helped herself to whatever took her fancy, was decidedly disturbing. The week had been cold and stormy. Junior and Judy had been indoors most of the time, with Inez as a daily companion, and with numberless visits from the other children of the neighborhood. At least three times during the week, Genevieve had gone home weeping because in playing school, she had been cast for the role of pupil instead of teacher, or because Jack Horner had said her hair was red, or for some other equally valid reason. The young hunts had been frequent callers. There had been as many small boys as girls among the visitors to the nursery, but Pollyanna thought it safe to absolve the former of all responsibility in the matter. She was sure that the celluloid doll, with its plump stomach and inane smile, was the last thing in the world to appeal to junior sex. She questioned the children, to discover if they had taken any of their playmates into their confidence regarding their Christmas benefactions. It appeared that, undeterred by any reluctance to acquaint their left hand with the charities of the right, they had showed the doll and the fire engine to every child who had entered the house. It seemed, however, that, though they had displayed their gifts so complacently, they had refused to allow them to be touched. I guess Mamie Bunting would cry if her dolly got all broke, said Judy in her flute-like voice, and Pollyanna resolved to replace the doll immediately, before Judy's heart was broken by learning of its mysterious disappearance. She removed the basket from the low shelf in the linen closet to the high one in the closet in her own room, warning the children not to try to reach it. For the next few days she felt as if she owed an apology to every small girl who entered the house, because, almost against her will, 
She was scrutinizing her to decide whether or not she was guilty of purloining the doll, designed to make a merry Christmas for little Mamie Bunting. One evening, about a week before Christmas, Jimmy was called from his perusal of the newspaper to assist Pollyanna in subduing a refractory window shade. When he returned to his easy chair, Judy was leaning against it, her attention riveted on a cartoon intended to emphasize the appeal in behalf of the city's hundred neediest cases. So steadily did she gaze upon the sheet that it looked as if she were reading, and Jimmy, much amused, called Pollyanna's attention to the motionless little figure. Pollyanna looked, smiled lovingly, and then glanced at the clock. "'Oh, it's later than I thought,' she exclaimed. "'Judy!' Judy did not stir. "'Don't you hear, Mother, darling? It's bedtime.' Judy turned upon her a look of such utter distress that Pollyanna was startled. "'Mother,' she quavered, "'what makes the little girl cry?' Pollyanna gave her attention to the work of art which had occasioned Judy's question. A woman, in the last stages of consumption, to judge from the hollow cheeks and temples, sat in a rickety chair, holding a gaunt infant to her breast. Beside her stood a little girl, thin, ragged, with dejection evident in every line of her drooping figure, and with tears upon her cheeks. Pollyanna was sorry Judy had seen the picture, the tragic intensity of her upraised face showed her too sensitive to be confronted with so somber a phase of life. She answered reassuringly, The little girl is crying because she is poor, but somebody is going to help her to have a merry Christmas, and then she will smile. Is she crying because she wants a dolly? Pollyanna saw her chance to impart comfort. I'm sure she wants a doll. All little girls do. And, when she gets one on Christmas Eve, she'll be very happy. She felt that this assurance should restore Judy's customary cheerfulness, and was disappointed when the child unsmilingly kissed her father good night, and mounted the stairs in a contemplative silence, as if part of the world's burdens rested heavily on her small shoulders. It was one of the evenings when Judy's prayers seemed unending. Junior galloped through his petitions, tumbled into bed and fell asleep while Judy droned on. She prayed for all the members of the household, including Jig, Sin, and Goldilocks. She prayed for each of the family connections by name. She began on the neighborhood, apparently resolved to do her duty by each individual. "'Don't you think, dear,' suggested Pollyanna, uneasily recalling the doll's wardrobe downstairs, on which so many stitches were yet to be taken.' that she might say, and bless all my other friends? Judy, her eyes squeezed tightly shut, her plump little hands folded in the charming pretext of devotion, ignored the suggestion. And bless Mr. Hunt, and Albert Hunt, and Arthur Hunt, and Cornelia Hunt, and Elizabeth Hunt, and Sarah Hunt, and Mr. Wilkins, and Mrs. Wilkins, and Genevieve Wilkins, and don't let her cry so much, and Mr. Hamilton, and Mrs. Hamilton, and Florence Hamilton, and Mr. The roster of the neighborhood was exhausted at last, in spite of Pollyanna's fears that it would last till midnight. Then, as she kissed Judy goodnight, two plump little arms went round her neck in a strangling clasp. Mother, 
Tell me a story. Oh, I can't, dear, possibly. You see, I've got to help Santa Claus out. He has so many little children to look after. I want a drink of water. Pollyanna laughed, realizing that Judy was playing for time. You had a drink just before you came upstairs, darling. You can't be thirsty again. Now go to sleep just as fast as you can. Maybe you'll dream about a Christmas tree. Pollyanna was working little buttonholes on the nightgown for Judy's Christmas doll, and Jimmy was reading The Christmas Carol aloud to her, as he always did at this season, when his ear caught a signal of distress from the floor above. He laid down his book to listen. Why, is that one of the children? he exclaimed. What is it, Jimmy? Sounds to me like somebody crying softly. Pollyanna flew up the stairs. Jimmy had not been mistaken. Judy lay in her bed, the tears rolling over her round cheeks, sobbing quietly. As a rule, Judy was dramatic in her emotions, and this subdued grief was more alarming to her mother than any noisy outburst. She leaned tenderly over the little bed. "'What's the matter, darling?' "'It... it hurts,' gulped Judy. "'Where does it hurt?' "'Here.' Judy clapped her hand to the pit of her plump little stomach, and burst into a passion of weeping. Pollyanna went for the hot water bag. "'Did you have anything to eat today that Mother didn't know about?' she asked, when she had taken steps toward making the little sufferer comfortable. "'No, Mother,' Judy sobbed. "'You're sure none of the children brought over cake or candy?' "'Truly they didn't, Mother.' "'Then I guess it won't hurt long. Try to go to sleep.' But, even with the hot water bag on her stomach, and her mother's hand resting on her forehead, Judy continued to sob, and presently Jimmy came into the room, looking anxious. "'Don't you think?' he asked in a carefully lowered voice, after listening to Pollyanna's explanations, "'that we'd better call the doctor.' "'She doesn't seem at all feverish,' Pollyanna replied. "'And certainly, if it were serious, she'd have a temperature.' She turned again to her patient. Do you feel better, dear? No, wailed Judy with astonishing vehemence. It hurts awful. Pollyanna began to think that Jimmy was right. But, before she could send him to the phone to summon the doctor, Judy had clutched her arm. Mother, she demanded tragically, is the little girl in the picture crying because I took her dolly? Pollyanna's heart jumped. The first explanation that occurred to her was that the child was delirious. Then a second thought made her lay a detaining hand on Jimmy's arm. What dolly do you mean, Judy? The one I took it out of the basket. Where did you put it? Judy jumped out of her bed, the hot water bag falling to the floor with a protesting gurgle. She marched into the nursery, her parents following, and seated herself in front of a doll's trunk an extravagant gift from Aunt Ruth, provided with a substantial lock and key. Judy unlocked the trunk, took out the tray, removed a number of articles, and finally, from the bottom, produced something wrapped in a piece of blue outing flannel. The wrapping removed, there was a doll intended for Mamie Bunting's Christmas present. For a moment, Pollyanna found herself incapable of speech. 
She was not foolish enough to exaggerate the importance of Judy's wrongdoing. Like Akin, she had seen and coveted, had taken and hidden. There was nothing surprising in that. What appalled Judy's mother was the way the little girl had kept her counsel, her noncommittal manner, her baffled look of innocence. Pollyanna had known of children, given the fruit of the tree of knowledge by unhallowed hands, whose mothers had never found it out, and she had always wondered how that were possible. Now she knew. What tragic lack of understanding in the past, she wondered, could have made childhood so terribly on its guard, so competent to keep its secrets. For the moment she was dumb, aghast at the vastness of her responsibility. She spoke very gently at last. That was selfish, wasn't it, darling? For you have so many things, and poor Mamie have so little. She cried cause she wanted her dolly, Judy said with conviction. Pollyanna perceived that to Judy, the flesh-and-blood Mamie Bunting, was the vaguest of shadows, while the weeping child in the picture had all the substance of reality. She escorted Judy back to bed, and picked up the hot water bag from the floor. Do you want this again? Doesn't hurt now, answered Judy, and she snuggled down against her pillow with a sigh of vast relief. Jimmy was inclined to find the whole affair very amusing, and to laugh at Pollyanna for taking it seriously and Pollyanna went so far as to admit that she was glad it had happened. I'm glad, Jimmy, because it shows me how hard a mother must work to gain her children's confidence. Just being loving and sympathetic isn't enough. Oh, that inscrutable little face! And then, she continued, her own face brightening, I'm so glad her conscience troubled her without my saying a word. She didn't want to be found out, bless her. There's still another reason for you to congratulate yourself, Jimmy remarked gravely. The fact that a man's heart is in his stomach was established long ago, and now, thanks to Judy, we know that the conscience has exactly the same location. End of chapter 8 Read by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona, June 23, 2021